0: I don't mean to pry into your private life or anything like that but uh, uh just what is gesture to you well, i teach neuropsychiatry and i'm doing some research in migraine headaches oh. the head opens up <laughs> just what is your theory on migraines in case i get a headache blood vessels in the head dilate excessively due to excitement and overwork causing a pressure on the nerve centers oh. yes we travel at much too fast a pace especially women they are not equipped to uh, take an equal place in a man's world. <laughs> Just what makes you think it's a man's world? Well, it's an accepted fact that the male is a superior animal. Now, in spite of what you and little Chester here may think, the modern woman can match you men fiber for fiber and have a rib left over. I think you read that somewhere. I did. In the most wonderful book called Spister's Aunt Spinach. Oh, yes, yes. That chambermaid at the hotel had a copy. Oh, did she? Another one with no forehead. Well, you shouldn't read trash like that. I didn't read it. Well, it's just as well. I wrote it. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. That's quite all right. I didn't expect you or any other man to enjoy it. You know, marriage is no longer the answer to a maiden's prayer. Oh, slaving over a hot stove all day is all right for some of the more backward members of our sex. But there's a new kind of woman coming into the fore. The kind that refuses to subordinate her personality to... ...to that of the egotistical, domineering male. Hmm. Seems to me the Amazon's tried it. You're listening to Sassmouth Dames Podcast. I'm your host, Megan McGurk. In the opening scene of The Men in Her Life from 1941, Loretta Young plays a 14-year-old trick rider in a circus who adds a bit of amateur dance in her act. Conrad Veidt watches from the audience, entranced by the girl's singular beauty as though he found a floral bouquet among the sawdust. After the show, he compliments her performance and flatters her by saying she could become a great dancer. A ballerina's hands are as important as her feet. Loretta's hands are graceful and expressive. Later, he agrees to teach her how to dance, and in time, choreographs a ballet called The White Rose, which makes her an international star. The ballet, *White wrote, ends with a dramatic death scene. Loretta carries it with her hands. It's the fingers on her right hand that resemble a dancer's legs, which bend and then splay in the death scene as Loretta collapses on stage. It may sound hokey, but it works on screen. Loretta Young had a keen eye for the smallest detail and built her stardom on talent and discipline. Yet even though she is one of the studio era's most durable stars, Loretta's legacy has been overshadowed by gossip and scandal. Nicknamed one of the Hollywood nuns, alongside Irene Dunn and Rosalind Russell, Loretta's filmography has not been as revived or celebrated in the same way as her dear friends. People only seem to talk about how Loretta adopted her own child or kept a swear jar on set as a tax she collected for bad language. I can't count the number of times I've read a reference to Ethel Merman's story about having appeared on Loretta's TV show. It's usually told as a joke at Loretta's expense, painting her as some kind of pearl-clutching prude. The story claims that Ethel objected to paying a dollar each time she cursed. Ethel then threw a $20 bill at Loretta and said, Here, go fuck yourself. As Loretta put it, it's a good story, but it's just a story. It's not true. I couldn't find any evidence that Ethel had ever appeared on Loretta's show. It's not listed in Ethel's IMDb credits, nor does she appear in the cast list for either Loretta's two TV shows. So I'm happy to debunk a Hollywood myth. Loretta explained that the only person who complained about the swear jar was the notoriously cheap Rudy Valley who needed help finding its wallet with assistance from a couple of large crew members. The swear jar financed her pet charities for years, which included St. Anne's Maternity Hospital in Los Angeles. In 1940, after she spent more than 20 years in front of a camera, Loretta began her freelance career and it ushered in a golden period of professional distinction that included the Academy Award for Best Actress. It's worth noting that Loretta made three pictures for Dory Sherry, a man who went out of his way to push what he considered lightweight entertainers out the door when he took over in MGM. If anybody was a snob in Hollywood, it was Dory Sherry. You may recall in earlier episodes, I've talked about how unsympathetic, if not downright hostile, Dory Sherry was to both Esther Williams and Lana Turner. Because of Dory Sherry, we never got to see that picture where Ava Gardner and Lana Turner play rival newspaper reporters. But Sherry counted Loretta among his favorite stars in his memoir, along with Myrna Loy, Cary Grant, and Spencer Tracy. A visit to the set of Man's Castle in 1933, when he was a new screenwriter in Hollywood under contract briefly with Columbia Pictures, might have been the start of Sherry's esteem for Loretta. Later, he lobbied for her to receive the role in The Farmer's Daughter, which led to her Oscar win. He developed two other pictures for Loretta. And other Hollywood filmmakers believed in her talent, including Harry Cohn, Frank Capra, Wilson Wells, Frank Borzaghi, Hal Wallace, Bill Wellman, Tay Garnett, and a host of others. I'd like to highlight Loretta's first year as a freelance because it's remarkable for its showcase of her talent and what she learned as a star in the Hollywood studio system. What Loretta needed was a steady flow of woman's pictures, and once she found them in the 1940s, she was in her element. The ladylike stereotype that attaches itself to Loretta overlooks the fact that she held her own for decades amongst powerful men in Hollywood. Loretta stood up to directors and moguls from a young age when they risked her safety or tried to cheat her contract. She gave out to Cecil B. DeMille after he shot an arrow an inch from her face during a scene for The Crusades on location for The Call of the Wild, she refused Bill Wellman's directions for a water shoot in sub-zero temperatures, fearing for her health. And when Warners and 20th Century Fox failed to honor terms in her contract, she walked out the door. In 1953, she walked away from her film career and Loretta became one of the first stars of television. Loretta was to television drama what Lucille Ball was to TV comedy. trailblazer. Loretta Young's screen debut at age four was accompanied by a smack across the face. Cast in her first picture, little Gretchen Young, her name at birth, was expected to cry on command. During a dramatic scene, her tears would not flow. Loretta's uncle took her aside and smacked her across the mouth. Naturally, the child began sobbing. Tears rolled down her face she wouldn't have been the only child treated poorly on a film set. Later in 1917, cast in The Primrose Ring, the star May Murray was so captivated she wanted to adopt the little girl. When Loretta appeared with her sisters as extras in Valentino's The Shake, the girls were put into a big tub each day with other children and doused with dark henna, which dyed their skin and took months to fully remove. On a picture with Colleen Moore, the star chose to name the girl Loretta to replace Gretchen. Loretta grew up on a soundstage. By the time she was 13, she was smoking in front of a camera and playing adult roles. At 14, she was cast as the love interest for 45-year-old Lon Chaney in Laugh, Clown, Laugh. Throughout production, Loretta was targeted for daily abuse from the director, Herbert Brennan. He made her climb over a fence topped with barbed wire. Another day, Brennan ended one of his horrible tirades by throwing a chair at the girl. For one scene, he made her walk across a tightrope wire in front of a live audience. The wire was sharp enough to cut flesh. In the middle of the scene, Loretta became spooked when she saw a look of fear on one of the extras' faces. She fell and dropped to the stage. Loretta had so many splinters in her legs, the studio doctor had to give her gas while he removed them. No matter how she tried to please Brennan, either by doing difficult stunts or by not crying as the men in the crew had advised, the the director still berated her at volume. On the verge of a nervous breakdown, Loretta was only able to finish the picture because Lon Chaney stayed on the set whenever she was there, since the director seemed to refrain from abusing her when the top-built star was around. After the picture wrapped, Brennan attempted to pass off the way he browbeat her, as though it was some method to get a performance out of her. Perhaps the experience taught Loretta that it was pointless to try and please a bully. She would have to stand up to them instead. At 17, Loretta eloped with Grant Withers in a marriage that was annulled months later. Grant called Loretta a steel butterfly. I don't know if that was meant to flatter Loretta, but to me it sounds like a way to describe a girl who was tougher than she looked. Working under a breakneck speed at First National, her contract was taken over in a buyout from Warner Brothers. Loretta made up to eight pictures a year in the pre-code era. In 1934, when she was due for a raise, Warners refused. The front office expected her to work at the same pay for another year without objection. Dissatisfied with the treatment she received in Warners, Loretta left the studio. It wasn't even the money, so much as what it said. It said they didn't have to play fair, and she should just take it and like it. Loretta negotiated an offer from Daryl Zanuck, who had just left Warners to take the role as head of production for the newly merged 20th Century Fox studio. Loretta had three conditions when she signed with Zanuck. First, she told him she didn't want to play next to George Arliss. Additionally, she wanted star roles, not leading lady roles, which were secondary supporting characters. In other words, she didn't want to play the wife or the girlfriend in a man's picture. She also wanted three weeks holiday every year. Zanuck agreed to her terms, but argued he couldn't put it in writing because he would have to do the same for everyone on contract. Loretta's terms were guaranteed by verbal agreement. Zanuck gave his word. Loretta might have known things would go downhill when she was immediately cast next to Arliss in the House of of Rothschild, her first picture under contract with 20th Century Fox. That's the way the wind blew for Loretta in the studio. For years, the studio put her in leading lady roles. She was there to build up stars like Ty Power and Donna Michi, who were paid more and had the central part in the script or else she was loaned out to other studios to support male stars like Robert Taylor and Clark Gable. Loretta waited a long time for her holiday, and it wasn't exactly restful. Rather than take time off to relax or sightsee, Loretta's break from production was spent managing the morals code in Hollywood. After she discovered she was pregnant, Loretta risked her career defying the moguls, censors, and columnists by having her child— Then she arranged to adopt her daughter Judy, which was the only way she could keep her kid and her career. Unless you've been living in a cave for the last seven years, you already know that decades later, Loretta confided confided in a family member that her pregnancy was the result of the time she was raped by Clark Gable on a train back from a location shoot for The Call of the Wild. Over the years, Loretta grew frustrated by the lack of care the studio had given her career. She felt Daryl Zanuck lacked the ability to recognize women's talent. He was a man's producer, rather than someone like Irving Thalberg, who knew how to produce star vehicles for women. Zanuck devoted his energy to developing male stars and cast women haphazardly, plugging them into supporting roles. As their relationship soured, Zanuck became fractious and petty. He would nitpick Loretta's wardrobe, both what she wore on and off screen. He would say things like, My wife wouldn't wear a dress like that. Loretta would snap, Well, your wife isn't a film star, I am. During production of Suez in 1938, they argued over her costume for a scene set in the stands of a tennis match. Loretta had researched costumes for the part because she figured if she couldn't have a juicy role, at least she could take some comfort in wearing lavish historical costumes. Zanuck told her that the big white dress for the scene would have to go because she looked like a star among extras. Loretta fought for the dress, saying it fit the character, Empress Eugenie, who is known as a fashion plate in real life. She told Zanuck not to dress her down and instead to dress up the crowd of extras, which is exactly what happened when they shot the scene. Two things helped Loretta to break finally from the studio. First, she was inspired by dear friend Irene Dunn, fellow Hollywood nun, who had given up long-term studio contract. Loretta decided to follow Irene and freelance. On an exclusive contract, the hours were too long and holidays too short. She was tired all the time and felt as if her friendship suffered. As a freelance star, Loretta would have more control over how she worked and with whom. The second thing that made her exit possible was a new agent. Loretta had been casually dating director Eddie Sutherland. One night, while they were out together, Loretta talked about a recent argument she had with Daryl Zanuck when she turned down a script. Zanuck threatened her by sending her over to Western Avenue, the studio's B-picture unit. Loretta fired back that the only decent picture she made under contract was Ramona, and that that had been filmed over in Western Avenue. Eddie advised her that she couldn't fight Zanuck on her own. She needed Myron Selznick as her agent. But as far as Loretta was concerned, Myron was an uncouth old soak. But once Eddie set up a meeting for Loretta with Myron, she was won over. He listened to her. Myron asked what your career goals were and what she wanted. Myron brokered a meeting with Zanuck and Joe Skank. When all four of them sat down, Skank was surprised Loretta wanted to leave and didn't want to renew and asked why. She complained that she was given dead-end leading lady parts. She didn't want to play those anymore. She wanted central roles to build up her career. The problem was, she noted, that Zanuck didn't make woman's pictures. Also, Zanuck had never given her a raise, unlike frequent co-star Ty Power, who had received four raises in less than two years in the studio. She objected to the fact that Zanuck never sent flowers or or a courtesy that she felt she earned as a star. She was eager to fulfill her studio obligations and move on. Zanuck was not about to let her go without exercising his power. He assigned Loretta to the story of Alexander Graham Bell, the kind of role she hated and told him she didn't want to play back in 1933. Production began one day before her contract expired. Then the shoot was halted for weeks, delayed without explanation, until it finally resumed in earnest. Moguls knew a level of petty that most mortals could never dream about. Before she left 20th Century Fox, Loretta told Zanuck he ruined every woman he touched. Decades later in interviews, Loretta referred to any leading lady role she played in as a Mrs. Alexander Graham Bell part. The picture became a label she could stick on any part. She didn't want where she wasn't the center of the story. Zanuck didn't take the high road after Loretta left. As she began her freelance career, Loretta would meet producers and they'd say, oh, I have a great script for you. And then she'd never hear from them. Nine months after she left Fox, having done only one picture, she finally realized that there had to be some kind of agreement among the producers zanuck had blackballed loretta probably at one of those hollywood poker games loretta asked myron selznick to find out and he confirmed what she had suspected too many producers feared the wrath of zanuck but myron had a solution there was one man who wasn't afraid to cross zanuck myron was pretty sure harry Cohn in columbia would sign her if she lowered her asking price Back in 1933, Loretta made one of her favorite pictures in Columbia, Man's Castle, and had received the star treatment, which might explain why she didn't hesitate to sign for a two-picture deal. Harry Cohn had always been keen to welcome stars who'd been cast out or ill-treated by other studios. He believed in talent, and he also enjoyed a chance to prove himself wiser than other studio bosses. Columbia Studio had boosted the careers of Claudette Colbert and Irene Dunne with screwball comedy, which Loretta no doubt had in mind when she signed. A modern screen article from January 1940 with the headline She's a Rebel launched Loretta's new freelance career. In the interview, Loretta argued that she had no patience for people who advised her to sit passively and wait for career opportunities. Loretta declared, I'd rather be wrong than ruled. In the same profile, Loretta observed every woman should have some rebellion in her makeup. She also said she didn't need a husband to find true happiness. Loretta didn't play it safe. She wanted more than what the men in the studio offered and she went after it with both hands. Not only did two pictures she made for Columbia in 1940 receive good reviews and both did well at the box office, each film also proves how Fox had ignored her talent. She was vindicated. Free of Zanuck, Loretta no longer had to waste her energy fighting the front office. Years of continuous battle had taken a toll, but Loretta was resilient and absent the Zanuck albatross, she soared. The doctor takes a wife, and he stayed for breakfast, showcased Loretta's facility with light comedy. She's firing on every cylinder. Loretta plays straight man in farcical scenes with Ray Milan and Mel Douglas. When men lose the run of themselves in their cups or on a soapbox, Loretta is the adult who outsmarts them. She aces a comedy dynamic that's so commonplace today, where a sophisticated woman deals with a man-child husband. Both pictures are long overdue for a prestige DVD release. The first picture she made in 1940 for Columbia, The Doctor Takes a Wife, was originally intended for Irene Dunn and Cary Grant, who had filmed the huge hit The Awful Truth in Columbia with director Leo McCarey. Irene and Cary were unavailable, far too busy, so Cohn signed Loretta and Ray Milland. Loretta plays a best-selling author who writes advice guides for women. Her book, Spinsters Aren't Spinach, is a title borrowed from Elizabeth Hawes' bestseller, Fashion is Spinach, a polemic advocating American design over French couture, which she considered a racket. Loretta's character, June Cameron, is a big hit with working women. The book argues that women don't need men to be happy. Loretta's character wears thick, boiled-wool suits that are stylish. She has money, a cute apartment, an escort when she wants one, and the freedom to do what she likes. Ray Milland, as the fly in her ointment, is a swoon merchant in disguise. He plays Dr. Tim Sterling, who has typically backward views about how women should be decorative and devoid of ambition, that Loretta will soon correct. He insults Loretta's book, her career, and general demeanor. But if we compare their work, Loretta could publish the same book today and land on the bestseller list. But Tim's migraine research and belief about head shape and the size of thumbs and all that stuff looks positively medieval next to a modern career woman. On the surface, it's pure formula. It's the kind of thing that is deceptively easy and often copied but rarely matched. The doctor takes a wife, makes a smooth transition between mutual dislike to mutual desire. By accident, it appears as if they have tied the knot. Reporters want the scoop about the famous single woman marrying a doctor and in her apartment catch sight of a pantless Ray Milland. So either the writer has a husband or she has a half-naked stranger in her bedroom. Loretta's character commits to the publicity stunt in order to avoid scandal. Loretta doesn't seem the least bit shocked at seeing Ray Milan in his sock garters reeling around drunk. And she recalled that in, for the scene, he was worried about playing the drunk scene, and she advised him to take it like it was everything was hilarious, play one of those happy drunks which is unlike the maudlin version he played to acclaim for his best Oscar win in The Lost Weekend, years later. The author and the doctor must spend nights under the same roof, a situation that would have brought out sharp blue pencil objections from the Breen office, if not for the fact that Loretta Young had a spotless reputation. The fake marriage brings advantages for both their careers, including another book for Loretta and a professorship for Ray. Screwball, hijinks ensue, but in the third act, the tone shifts into drama when Ray Milan delivers a baby in a rural farmhouse and Loretta steps in to take care of the rest of the family. And then they fall in love in front of the camera. In one of Loretta's best scenes, she shows up like a bad penny to ruin Gail Patrick's big announcement that she and the doctor are getting married. Loretta uses exquisite underplay to sit off to the side knitting baby clothes. Gail Patrick has the wind blown out of her sails, quietly upstaged by Loretta's knitting needles. For her second picture under contract with Columbia, he stayed for breakfast. Loretta again spends nights alone under the same roof with a man she isn't married to. And this time the man is Melvin Douglas, playing a communist organizer who is wanted by police for shooting her estranged husband, a banker played by Eugene Pallette. Loretta's reputation again silenced the Blue Noses. And years later, during the McCarthy-era witch hunts, no one ever accused Loretta of being a red sympathizer just because she plays one uh, who falls for a communist in a picture. Mel Douglas shouts abuse about the rich from the start. He shoots a pistol at Eugene Pellet for sticking out his little pinky when he drinks coffee, which Mel argues is a plutocrat affectation. On the run from police, Mel hides out in Loretta's flat. Um, They bond over Eugene's pinky thing. Mel complains about her bourgeois perfume and insults her. He snaps out comments like, Women of your class keep their word in everything but love affairs. It gives you a fake sense of honor. In one scene, Loretta, held at gunpoint, bites Mel, and he shouts, You cannibalistic cannibal. (laughs) <laughs> you capitalistic cannibal it's not enough you exploit us you have to eat us too he stayed for breakfast includes the shrewd observation that men who fight for the common man still expect to sit down at a table and be served a big steak by a woman Their verbal sparring develops into something more than class antagonism. She believes that too much Lenin has taken away his male instincts, meaning he thinks about politics when he should be thinking about sex. Mel tells Loretta that taxi dancers, which she was before she married the rich banker, are born capitalists because they all want to marry millionaires. In one scene, Loretta says to her maid that life would be so much easier without men an observation that might have been taken from any point in her own studio career experience. In another scene, Mel wanders around in one of Loretta's dressing gowns, a la Cary Grant and Bringing Up Baby, and the gag still works. At one point in the production, Loretta deftly handled interference from studio boss Harry Cohn. Instead of submitting to one of his heavy-handed directives, Loretta won him over with reason. It was an issue about the wardrobe. Loretta had always taken a keen interest in her costumes. Oftentimes, they were the starting point for her character. She found and built a performance with the clothes. On set of He Stayed for Breakfast, costume credit is shared by Irene and Robert Coloche. But the knockout design, which instantly establishes Loretta's character, was made by Irene. Loretta consulted with Irene, who showed her a sketch for a black gown. From the shoulder to the hip, it was made of lace and had cutouts under the breast and it was open up in the back. Loretta loved the gown, yet wondered how Irene would be able to make it. Irene used a nude fabric as a lining underneath the black lace. When it was finished, Loretta wore it for the costume test before the camera. She was delighted. It fits perfectly and is deeply flattering. The gown looks exactly like something you would expect a sophisticated woman to wear who is separated from her husband and living in a chic Paris flat. After Harry Cohn saw the rushes, he rang Loretta at home to talk about the lace gown. He said the dress was just lace. It looked dirty. She couldn't wear it in the picture. Loretta replied that it was lined with nude fabric. She wasn't really bare-skinned. Her skin was covered. But it doesn't look like it, he said. Loretta didn't get angry, as she would have done with Daryl Zanuck. She said, okay, she would get something else. But she would like to buy the gown from him. Cohn asked, where would Loretta wear it? Loretta replied that she could wear it to the Macombo, or dinner at Jack Warner's, or Harry's house if he hosted a black tie party. That was all the studio boss needed to hear. If Loretta would wear it in Hollywood society, she could wear it in his picture. When reviews came in, many made special mention of the black lace gown. Loretta sent one clipping to Harry just in case he missed it to make sure he knew everybody was talking about the gown. Say what you like about him. The man was no fashion expert, but he trusted talent. Like her friends Rosalind Russell and Irene Dunn, Loretta got on with Harry. Later, they fell out during bedtime story over a dress she bought that he considered too expensive and didn't want to pay for. But that's another story. Loretta Young went on to give several standout performances in the 1940s, including Ladies Courageous, Along Came Jones, The Stranger, The Farmer's Daughter, The Bishop's Wife, Rachel and the Stranger, The Accused, and Come to the Stable. And then she pioneered television drama for more than a decade. The following books helped me to write the episode, People Will Talk by John Coble. Eavesdropping, Loretta Young Talks About Her Movie Years by Edward Funk. Behind the Door, The Real Story of Loretta Young by Edward Funk. Heyday, an autobiography by Dory Sherry. Conversations with classic film stars. Interviews with Hollywood's golden era from uh, James Bawden and Ron Miller. King Cone, the life and times of Hollywood mogul, Harry Cone by Bob Thomas. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for a news story in an original podcast series. Stenographers premieres in May. If you're enjoying the podcast, why not leave a nice review on iTunes or social media? Thanks very much.